Morning. Glad you're here this morning. Here with some family members for the special occasion of dedication are here just to enjoy Mother's Day. Or if you're visiting for the first time, any of those reasons, we're especially glad you're here. Uh, for those of you who are visiting for more than the first time, we're glad you've come back. For those who are family, regular family members, uh, it's great to see y'all this morning. I'm looking forward to spending some time together in the throne room, uh, enjoying some truth together. I don't have a Mother's Day message prepared if I'm I, I just not much of a theme preacher. And uh, that's kind of a theme. It's a cool theme, and I'm thankful for moms, and I'm thankful for my own mom and for the mom of my own kids. And I hope y'all are especially enjoyed today, but the sermon's not for mothering. It's more about worship as worshipers. So it's for all of us, moms and dads and kids and singles and everybody alike. So, but we love moms. We're thankful for them. So let's begin in prayer, and we'll climb into our time together. Lord, first this morning, I want to lift up a local official, newly reelected official. I want to pray for Dan Perkins. I want to pray for Dan first as a worshiper, trusting and that he knows you and enjoys you. I pray that this next term will be fueled by worship, that he will be driven by, compelled by, guided by your word, your truth, that he'll be walking with the people in an accountable way. I pray that he will be a, a, a source of light, uh, that he'll be salty, that he'll be aromatic as he serves on our city council in this next term. We're thankful for the opportunity to walk with him as a friend and a brother, and we pray that you will use him for your own glory in these, this next term. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another pastor and for his church and one that is near and dear and connected to our church. I want to pray for Lance and Sarah Keeling. What a difficult work they're about. There, there's no... No way that we here in Greenville, Texas can fully understand and appreciate all that they face from day to day. But Lord, we hear enough and know enough to know that it is a very difficult context. Lord, I pray for men who will stay sober enough, long enough to receive the seed, the good seed of the gospel in good loamy, rich soil and that it will take root and bear fruit and that Lance will have brothers serving alongside him as elders and deacons. We pine for the discipleable in Teopisca. We ache for those who will respond in repentance and faith and trusting Christ as their Savior and Lord and wanting to be a part of a people in a meaningful way in Teopisca pray that you will sustain Lance and Sarah in this work. And Lord, that if there is any other family or group of folks, group of families or any singles or individuals or whoever in our church that you are calling to be part of that work for two months or two years, that they won't rest at night. That they won't sleep well at night until they step out into that call. Or we beg for teammates in the work both from here and there. We beg for a viable disciple-making instrument that's shiny, bright, aromatic in the southern tip of Mexico for your own glory and for your namesake. Thankful that you are already there. Thankful that you are being enjoyed by Lance and Sarah and a row of kids. 
pray that you'll multiply that work. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for a clarity that I know I don't have. I pray for a... Um, I pray that the Holy Spirit would keep me from saying things I don't need to say. I pray that he would keep me from saying things that aren't absolutely and completely true. I pray that he would keep me from pontificating, but that I would in these next few minutes through your work of the Holy Spirit and the preparation that we've spent together this week, that you would expose truth, that you would set it free in the lives of your people, and that it would find purchase and bear fruit. Thankful for your word. Thankful for your Holy Spirit. Thankful for these next few minutes in advance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We are in the second part of a series of sermons called the Rest Series. The Rest Series. It's actually a long title. The the total title, full title of the series is the Rest Series, Rest Later, Rest Now, in that order. But then this morning, the sort of subtitle is From Warning to Promise. So it's a long title, and I, I just am not good at good, nice, catchy titles. So titles just really don't matter. So, But at least so you know kind of what the name of today is. Last week, the title of the sermon was Rest Series, Rest Later, Rest Now, Sabbath. Last week, we just considered what God has communicated about his Sabbath in the Old Testament. Last week, we sort of had a Bible study that's going to pay off in these coming weeks. It's not going to pay off so much this week as it will the next three. So this is just to prepare you for, if you were here last week and engaged the sermon last week, it's really going to pay off, pay dividends in these next three weeks. This morning, though, we're just simply going to unpack chapter four of Hebrews. We're going to set it loose, set it free, and see what it has to say about rest and worship. I'm going to give you a little lay of the land before we climb into chapter 4 of Hebrews. It's been a year and a half or so now that we've been in Hebrews. When I was studying, preparing for Hebrews, we went on a trip as a family to the Redwoods out in um, the Northwest. And I had the opportunity to preach the first sermon on Hebrews right after we got back from that trip. And in so many ways, I just, in fact, I think the title of the first sermon was A Grove of big trees or something like that. A massive grove was the title of the first sermon. And in a lot of ways, the book of Hebrews is a massive grove of monumental, massive truths. It is that at least. But what I found as we climbed into Hebrews and studied Hebrews more is it's an occasional letter. It's a sermon, but it's an occasional sermon. That means that it was written for a specific purpose, a specific occasion. And the occasion in the life of the Hebrews church is that they are on the bubble. The Hebrews church has worshipped well. The Hebrews church has served well. They have followed Christ in a very difficult setting, likely in Rome, under the heavy hand of Rome, persecution from Rome, Nero maybe, persecution from the Jews, which in some cases was worse than persecution from Rome. They've served well in a very difficult, very difficult context, but they are on the bubble. What they're considering doing is not only bailing on Christ, but on bailing on Christ and going back to Judaism. 
There's a potential for this church to become a synagogue. And this Hebrews preacher is writing this sermon, this massive grove of trees worth of sermon, as an occasion to say, don't do it. Don't go back even to a respectable fallback of Judaism. The first couple of chapters of Hebrews, he develops these contrasts. Chapter 1, between angels and Jesus. Angels were held in very high regard in, in early Judaism. I say it's ancient, but early Christian Judaism, that context. Angels were very, held in very high regard. And in the first chapter, a large part of it spent saying, here's what angels do, and here's where Jesus is. And then on into chapter 2, he does the same thing with Moses. Here's where Mo Moses is. He's a servant in God's house. But Christ is the son of the house and the builder of the house. Contrasting angels with Jesus, Moses with Jesus. And the book continues with one contrast after another. Joshua with Jesus is the one we're going to consider today or at least glance at. So he's developing this picture or developing this appeal for this church who's considering going back to Judaism. And in chapter 3, what we consider, it's a really neat contrast, a really neat picture. He made really what was in large part a warning, gave, gave them a warning. Don't do this because what you'll be doing, ironically, if you fall back into Judaism, is you'll be missing out on the promised land. A large part of chapter 3 is spent as a warning Continue in Christ or else you will miss out on the promised land. He hearkens back and uses Psalms number 95, Psalm 95, which is a psalm written about the nation of Israel bailing on God in the wilderness, on their early on their wilderness experience, or disbelieving, distrusting God, and the result of that being a million sandy graves over the course of the next 38 years where that entire generation dies in the wilderness and does not reach the promised land. So the large part of chapter 3 is a warning, continue with Christ or you won't enter the promised land to chapter 4. The and this thing is going in and out. and It's driving me crazy. I can tell. Can y'all tell? A little bit, Key? Yeah, a little bit. We'll do our best with it unless we got another plan. I'll go old-fashioned and just go without chapter 3 is a warning continue with Christ or you won't enter the promised land to chapter 4 he introduces a new metaphor continue with Christ or you won't enter his Sabbath rest but the tone changes from warning to promise chapter 3 is continue or else chapter 4 is continue because Continue because there's this amazing Sabbath rest in store for you should you continue. Chapter 3 and 4 are saturated with references. If you're looking at chapter 3 and 4 right there, you see these little indentations in your, in your text? Those are from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is pointing back to the wilderness experience where the nation of Israel complained and grumbled. We don't have anything to eat. We don't have anything to drink at Meribah and Mesa. And then they also disbelieved the spies that were sent over into the promised land that came back with good news. This land indeed flows with milk and honey. It's indeed there ripe for the, uh, the picking. They are bred to us. They disbelieved that report. And the result was a million sandy graves. Psalm 95. 
So it's the same reference. The Hebrews preacher encourages me in the way that he preaches here, first of all, because he does the same thing we do every week. He grabs a satellite and he exposes it. And his satellite is Psalm 95. Our satellite, really it's not a satellite, our text is Hebrews 3 and 4 with the second layer pointing back to Psalm 95, pointing back to an ancient experience in the wilderness. So it's a little complex. You have to have your head on. And you have to be thinking in order to get it. Some key words in Psalm 95. I'm not going to read Psalm 95 because a good portion of it is in Hebrews 3 and 4. But some key words that you hear used over and over again are the words today. The words here. The words rebellion. The word rest. And the words hardened hearts. You hear these words used over and over again, and not only in Psalm 95, but in Hebrews 3 and 4. And the preacher is making a point here with Psalm 95 as a reference. Don't fail to listen to God today. Don't bail on this journey, or you'll miss out on the promised land, and you'll miss out here in chapter 4 on the Sabbath rest. All right. Now, what I want to do is I want to read Hebrews 4 a couple of verses at a time. I'm going to share a few thoughts, just sort of the furniture of the room in Hebrews 4, and then three things that I want you to consider as a result of what we've exposed. This first part of the sermon is just to get a lay of the room. This piece of furniture is over here, this piece of furniture is over here. And then the last part of the sermon, we're going to sit in the room in different sections, three different sections, and take in what God is saying in this this amazing chapter. Okay, a couple verses at a time. In Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, Hebrews church, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Three things from this first verse. The word therefore ties chapter 3 and 4 together. The word therefore tells us this is one big appeal chapters 3 and 4. Also in verse 1, there's a promise here that's referred to. He says this promise of rest still stands. If you're an underliner in your Bible, if you're not opposed to writing in your Bible, underline still stands. That's good words we're going to consider here in a few minutes. A promise of rest still stands. And the third thing from verse 1, this third little piece of furniture I want you to just take notice to, take notice of, are the words, let us fear. It's going to be key later on in the morning. Let us fear, lest any of you fail to reach it. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, this phrase here, good news, actually in the original Greek means the preaching of good news. Euangelizo. It's the word that means preaching good news. It's used throughout our New Testaments for the preaching of good news. There's some really cool connections here that we're going to spend some time on later on this morning. But what I want you to see here is that What he's talking about, this ancient Israel that heard preaching of good news, the good news they heard was from Caleb and Joshua, 
about a land that they would inherit. The good news they heard was a land that, with houses they didn't build. A land that's filled with cisterns they didn't dig. A land that's filled with milk and honey. These sermons of good news were preached by good, faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua. They were preached by good, faithful men and servants like Moses. But it did not benefit them. They too, like the Hebrews church, like potentially Crosspoint Fellowship, had good news preached to them. But it did not benefit them because they were not united to it by faith. And they weren't united to the hearers by faith. They were just words. I wrote down in my Bible, Charlie Brown's teacher, for those of us who have been around long enough to watch Peanuts. Wah, 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 wah. They weren't united to it by faith, so it did not benefit them. They too heard good news. But they weren't united to the good news by faith. So it did not benefit them. And rest was not to be found by a faithless generation. And the consequence was a million sandy graves. A million sandy graves and the tragedy of a million people that did not find rest in the place that was promised to them. Let that hit you for a minute. An entire generation of a million people had a promise that was made to their forefather Abram. You're going to come back to this place and you're going to move in and it's going to be your land. You're going to drink from cisterns you didn't drink. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to, be, you're going to have honey running down your mouth. Milk uh, down the other side. Milk mustache. They didn't get it because they weren't united to the message by faith. And they ended up dying in the wilderness shy of the promise Shy of rest. Now, verses 3 through 5. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. It's funny to me that he couldn't remember exactly where he spoke of that. It's Genesis 2, see, Hebrews preacher. Genesis 2 he has spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Here he ties the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath concept where God instituted the seventh day where he rested after his work of creation in six days to what's in store for those who continue. Those who continue to the end will experience and enter into his Saturday. That's going to make total sense later. Just, par just give, give your brain a little place to park that for a few minutes because that's going, to, that's going to crystallize later where you're like, okay, now I get it. Those who continue will enter into his Saturday. Now, one of the cool things about these two chapters, this metaphor of the promised land and metaphor of Sabbath that we're going to consider some this week, we're going to consider in these next few weeks, is it introduces a theology of rest. 
it helps us explore with the escort of the promised land information that we know about and the Sabbath rest the information that we know about. We considered a lot of it last week to help us understand what's in store, what's being held out there as a carrot for us. Theology of rest gives us tremendous insight into God's design for rest. That should tell you, just before we even consider something about our God, that he actually wants you to rest. We have a God that actually wants to invite you into rest. What a great God to even hold that out there as something in store for us. Now let's look at verse 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, he's pointing back to Psalm 95. He's saying, he's saying David wrote Psalm 95. It's another way of saying the Psalter or the psalmist. Through the psalmist, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Hebrews preacher is making the point that this psalm, whether it's written by David or written post-exile, which is what I would lean toward, it's written so long after they moved back into Canaan, so long after the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground and moved into there, that God is obviously speaking about something else. He's appealing to the Hebrews church that the promised land was not it. The promised land was shadow of the real substance of what's in store for those who continue. Man, he's encouraging them with something that's really, really, really good. He's saying here that a rest remains for those who are connected and continue with Christ. So the appeal that we're going to consider today later is continue. Continue with your ears open. Continue listening today. For hearing and today go together. Hearing and today go together. Now verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. See, he's pointing to something that's after the promised land, the conquest the nation of Israel moves back into the promised land. He's pointing to something else. And here the metaphors sort of overlap where he's using interchangeably promised land and Sabbath. The promised land, though, is just shadow of the amazing thing that's in store for the nation of Israel and for us, for God's people, we should say. Verse 9 and 10. So there remains... Underline the word remains if you're an underliner. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath remains for those who enter God's rest. And the result is we rest from our works. Man, ooh, that's going to be such good news here in these next few weeks. We rest from our works. In verse 11, there's another let us. Let us therefore in light of that strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us together strive to enter that rest so that no may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. These verses come together, verses 11 through 13, to say this. Let us therefore strive to enter this Sabbath rest. Let us therefore strive to enter his promised land. And this series is going to make sense of how we enter into his rest in these next three Sundays. How we enter into his rest is going to be crystal clear in the next three sermons. And let us strive together to do this or else, in verse 12 or 13, you may have never thought about God's word this way. Or else... The Word of God, this thing that we treasure so much that we hold in our lap, will become our judge. And these instruments of cutting and slicing and dicing will be used to completely disassemble us. It's a totally new concept, totally new approach for the Word. We may have never even considered this thing that we treasure that gives life, that helps us understand who God is and what He's done, will become a Ginsu knife are worse and will be butchered by it. So right here at the last part of this little section we've considered, it turns ominous again. We're going to consider these things over the next few weeks. But three things I want us to consider this morning. If you made it through the unpacking, there's the furniture in the room. As far as we're going to go in chapter 4 today. But there are three things I want to bring out in these next few minutes. Three treasures. First of all, there's a standing promise. I had you underline some words here and there. In verse 1, the promise of rest still stands. In verse 6, Sabbath remains for some to enter it. In verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Whatever tone of chapter 3 that you may not have liked, if you'd made the journey through chapter, chapter 3, whatever tone of warning that you felt was unsavory, chapter 4 turns beautiful. Chapter 4, the tone is so encouraging and so hopeful if we're but listening for it. The promise of rest still stands. Sabbath remains there remains a Sabbath rest. Look at verse 8 with me. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The images of the promised land as rest, the good news that was preached to them by Joshua and Caleb and by Moses, had to have been substantial news. If you're a slave in Egypt, you've got to imagine the thought and the notion as you're making bricks for your entire lifetime, your dad and your dad's dad did the same thing and they died under that heavy yoke. You've got to imagine how sweet these promises must have been. Houses that we're going to get to live in that we didn't build? You mean we didn't build them? Cisterns we didn't dig that have water in them? 
milk and honey. Man, those are some really, really good promises. Some substantial promises. But they are but shadow for what remains for God's people. They are but shadow. They are a thin sliver of what remains and still stands for us. I love this new wrinkle, this new metaphor of the Sabbath because it helps me sort of climb into what that's like. My Sabbath rest, I told you, I take Fridays off, off limits. Now, there are some things that are really important that I'll tend to, but for the most part, I completely take Fridays off of ministry-type stuff. But if we could sort of convert it to Saturday. On those days, on those Sundays where I don't preach, man, I seriously enjoy my Saturdays. My family enjoys our Saturdays on the weeks where I don't preach. Because typically on Saturdays, I'm continually having to do work. It may not be all day long, but I've got it on my head. I'm pulling out my phone, and I'm entering in these little notes and memos that I want to remember that I need to go back to my notes and add to my notes. But an actual Saturday when I'm not preaching is a Saturday where I have nothing hanging over my head. Anybody like the sound of that? Nothing hanging over your head. Imagine that for a moment in the rest that we enter into, into, into God's rest. We have nothing hanging over your head. And I mean nothing. Just take the character of the Saturday, of the Sabbath. Where you have nothing do. Nothing do. You might have some chores. You might have a honeydew list, like I always do. I am joking because I don't ever do. Christy's not, we're not one of those kinds. But man, you might have some chores you're going to do on Saturday, but if there's nothing really due, if there's nothing really pressing, then even the work is not work. Man, you're whistling while you work. You're singing, everybody clean up, you got a smile on your face, because there's nothing due. It's not really that important. Even the chores are hardly work. And thinking about the Sabbath... Thinking about if this appeal for the the good news of the promised land is to move into houses you didn't build, to drink from cisterns you didn't drink, then the appeal for the Sabbath, if we want to add in the new metaphor, is enjoy a creation you didn't build. Man, step outside and enjoy a morning that you didn't build. You didn't tell the sun where to rise, you didn't tell the cardinal where to drink. You didn't tell the robin what to sing. You didn't have nothing to do. Enjoy a Sabbath where you weren't even, you didn't even participate in the deliverance. Remember the two things that we remember on Sabbath? We remember creation and we remember deliverance. Stand still and watch the Yeshua of the Lord part the waters and defeat the army for you. Man, what treasure he's given us here in this Sabbath imagery and realizing that this still stands for us. All three points this morning are really delightful to me, but this one, I don't know why, is especially delightful. I love just holding out for you who our God is because we have so many weird notions of who God is. This cosmic killjoy that's just, uh, it's much you like a bug. You know it. 
to really hold out the character of our God? Let me hold out the character of our God for a moment. That we have a God that not only instituted the Sabbath, but a God that invites us into his Sabbath. A God that invites us into the Sabbath with an invitation that is, here's a word that I've just enjoyed all week long, durable. With an invitation that's durable. Man, it hit me for a moment. Why on earth didn't the invitation end when Adam and Eve sinned? Some people think it was Monday morning. I mean, like day eight. That would have been Sunday morning. Day seven, God is resting. And it may have been day eight, Adam and Eve are eating forbidden fruit. Why would the promise of Sabbath rest still stand after that? What does that tell you about the nature of our God? That Sabbath rest would still be available after Adam and Eve broke the only commandment that they were given. They weren't even hungry. Surrounded by trees full of fruit. And they go to the one tree they're not supposed to eat from. But it's a durable invitation. Why in the world the invitation stands open after Cain murders Abel? Why didn't he close that invitation? No, I don't want these people to enter my rest. I gave them one, one commandment. Don't eat from that tree. I gave them one thing to do where they can actually worship me and one kills another because his worship was not as acceptable. Why in the world would I invite them into my rest? What does that tell you about our God? What a durable invitation. I thought about the flood. You know, some people think about the flood as some sort of uh, purifying thing. The flood purified nothing. The flood fixed nothing. Some people might think that they were more wicked then than they are now, than mankind is now. Here's what was said about the man before the flood. The wickedness was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds pretty bad. After the flood, after the water subsides, after Noah and his family climb out of the ark, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why is the Sabbath still open then? Why is that promise that durable? What does that tell us about our God? We can hold out this amazing treasure that we have this graceful God, shockingly graceful God, that this promise is that durable to survive Adam and Eve, to survive Cain and Abel, to survive worldwide wickedness and deluge, to survive a disobedient Israel. Read Ezekiel 16. Not as a family. Not good family reading. Read it in the quiet of your own home. And read how it ends. When you want to know what Israel was like, read Ezekiel 16. And then you too will hopefully be what it says at the end of Ezekiel 16. That they may be confounded that he would follow through on his invitation. This durable invitation to rest. 
How in the world does this invitation endure those things? How in the world would this invitation to rest endure the people that he created, his own people, shouting the words over and over again, give us Barabbas. Will you think about that for a minute? What a shocking God that would still hold forth rest. Come enter my rest. Come and enter my rest. What a durable, shocking promise. What a great, marvelous God that would institute rest and then invite us into it with a promise that this rest endures a church considering becoming a synagogue. That he doesn't say, now y'all are out. Done with you. The Hebrews preacher is making the same appeal that I'm making to you this morning. Be blown away at the greatness, the grace, the charity, the mercy of the God that we serve, that he would hold forth Sabbath. Come and enter it. Come on. Come enter my rest. Even after all that, he's appealing to these brothers and sisters to realize a good and gracious God still holds out a durable and gracious invitation to rest. So continue. The second thing to bring out this morning, the first was a standing promise. It should leave us shocked. The second is in this chapter we have yet another call to continue. Another call to continue. Here's where I told you things were going to come sort of come into focus and crystallize for you that he's using now this metaphor of the creation week and then the Sabbath rest. It's more than metaphor, but that's the only word I have for it right now. Because we have to first see it as metaphor before we can really connect to it. What I want you to see he's connecting here is he's cre- cre- he's connecting the call to the creation week and Sabbath rest Saturday as an appeal not to bail on hump day. Hebrews church, things are hard in Rome. Maybe granny died because she's lighting the, 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 the courtyard in Nero's garden as a human torch. Maybe grandpa lost his job because he was involved in the commerce that had to do with temple worship, not, not Jewish temple worship pagan temple worship. Maybe he lost his job because obviously he couldn't continue in that, so they're poor. I mean, connect some real details to what was likely going on in their, in their context. Real persecution. It's their hump day. And he's saying, don't quit on Wednesday. Saturday's coming. Hang in there. Man, Saturday's going to be good. There's nothing to do. There's nothing hanging over your head. And what a time to enjoy when you enter into my Saturday. Don't bail. Don't quit. I love this metaphor. I love this imagery. Went to a funeral yesterday for Key's sister. And the whole time I'm thinking, Kelly is in her Sabbath. I'm sitting two down from Dawn Rodden, who just buried her mom a few weeks ago. 
And I'm thinking, June Riggins has entered her Saturday. She made it through the week. Man, what a beautiful picture. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear lest any of you fail to reach it. Let us fear lest any of you fail to reach Saturday. Verse 6. Some who received good news failed to reach the Sabbath of the promised land. And then in verse 11, strive to enter Saturday. Let's import the language. Let's connect to it. Strive to reach Saturday so that no one quits on Thursday. It's so practical. It seems complex, but when you really expose it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's good. I sat around with Christy and Dawn yesterday just trying to think of every Dawn Rodden. Think of any example I could think of of this don't quit before you really get the goods. This isn't a great illustration. None of them really great, except maybe one. And I'll, I'll point it out just so you know what's great. This person's not very good. Don't quit before you get your retirement. I mean, you're still going to get some of it, so the illustration breaks down. But just imagine that if you quit your job, you got nothing. That would be a good illustration if it worked that way. Man, don't quit. The goods are coming later. Hang in there. Press on. This is the good illustration that really may not be very good to you, but it's good to me. Christy and I, for years when we were dating, we did all these hikes out in Yellowstone. Christy used to work out at Yellowstone National Park. And her dad and brothers all worked out there, so they know Yellowstone National Park like the back of their hands. And we, we did these long hikes. I mean, there was one hike we did. It was like 40-something miles over the course of three or four days in some rugged, rugged country. And we came out in Gardner. That's where we finished, in Gardner. And there's a place to eat in Gardner, Montana that's called Helen's. I call it Big Helen's because it just seemed like it ought to be Big Helen's. But it's Helen's where you get the biggest bison burger you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's milk and honey. You have a bison burger mustache eating this thing. This thing is amazing. But I was thinking, man, it would be like quitting the hike before you get to Big Helen's. You're missing out on a amazing bison burger. Don's, you know, Don's a big gardener. So Don said it would be like bailing on your garden when there are weeds sprouting up, when it's hard, before the harvest comes. You've got a garden there in the making. You've got plants that are fighting to bear fruit. But it would be like bailing on them, saying, ah, it's just hard. So you miss out on the, on the harvest. Christy said it would be like bailing on parenting. I mean, you can kind of exist in parenting. But it would be like bailing on proactively wanting to raise your children in faith and wisdom and righteousness. It would be like bailing on that before they rise and call you blessed someday, which may seem a long time from now. But man, don't bail. Don't bail before the finish line. Continue till Saturday. And here, man, you want some practical information on how that, what that looks like? It's right here in this passage. You continue with your ears. You continue 
with your ears. Look at verse 2. For the preaching of good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Continuing happens with your heart in faith and your ears engaging good news. That's how continuing happens. They were united by faith. The ones who would enjoy the promise are united by faith to a message with other hearers. We continue via listening. The point in verses 4 through 6 is that Sabbath rest is for the listening. Those who aren't listening won't find rest. Those who aren't listening to good news won't find rest. That's a promise. You might find a cheap version of it, but you won't find true rest. You might get a a good report from your boss. You might get a good report from your doctor. You might get a good visible report, something that's non-faith driven, some visible report. Those are all good things. Who doesn't want that? But you're only going to find real rest in the good news. In the good news preached. I want to tell you too, something that really encouraged me is seeing a continuity between ancient Israel, and I'm talking ancient, ancient Israel, back in the wilderness context. This this message, he says, good news was also preached to them, but they weren't united to it by faith. Continuity between ancient Israel and the early church. He didn't say some different kind of message was given to them. They received good news as well, but they weren't united to it by faith. There's continuity between ancient Israel and this Hebrews church. And now there's continuity over here with Crosspoint Fellowship right here in 2013 on Mother's Day. Same good news. Continuity. Satan works really hard, though, at making this seem artificial and making all that seem real. Yeah, that, that was, I mean, that was real. You know, Caleb and Joshua preaching to the nation of Israel, those were real people, real, real worshipers. And that was a real message. You saw how they responded? Let's stone them. Caleb and Joshua, they're bread for us. God has promised us this land. Let's go take it. Let's go smack some Nephilim. They dismissed it. Right here in the Hebrews context. Oh, that's just Pastor Bill. I mean, I don't know what his name would have been. Some Pastor Apollos. That's just Pastor Apollos. He's always so, you know, so over the top. <laughs> always so serious about this continuing thing. I mean, think about it. Satan wants to work really hard. I wonder if they too in the Hebrews context thought, felt like, oh, well, that's just kind of artificial. That's the real stuff back there, back in Psalm 95. None of it's artificial. There's continuity for them between the ancient Israel and the early church with us right here, right now. Good news is being preached to you. Are you going to be united to it by faith? Are you going to continue via your ears? That's what's being communicated right here. If you do and you are, that's where you'll find rest.
If you're clamoring about for rest, you're like, man, I can't find it. I can't find it. But you're not listening to good news preached each week. I'll make you this promise. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. If you're a visitor, you're from another town, you're here with a family member for, you know, baby dedication, stuff like that, I want to appeal to you that likely that joker back in whereverville you're from that preaches each week, that's not artificial. That's not artificial. This is one big storyline of God's people, and we're on the line. Just because we're post-canonical, just because the Bible's been finished, doesn't mean we're somehow artificial and that was real. It's all real. And God uses foolish things like Joker back in Xville, like Joker here in Greenville, like Joker right over there in Greenville, like Joker back there in Greenville, like some of the deacons you're going to hear exposed in these next few weeks that come and preach. That's the good news that we're united to by faith. That's what continuing looks like. You're like, hey man, me and God are good. I'm going to continue with God, but I don't really need that. You're on somehow some sort of different program than what God designed. And I don't think that will fare well. That's freestyle. That's like strange fire. <laughs> Ask Nadab and Abihu how that works out. It won't go well. He's going to use a joker. Caleb and Joshua, a Moses, a Hebrews preacher, a dude in Xville. Man, what we need to realize here is that anyone can grow dull of hearing and resultantly hard-hearted. Later on, just listen. Well, uh, Emily Higgins, you can turn here. I know she gets mad anytime I say just listen. So any of you that I'm going to turn there, just tell me to just listen. I Somebody told on you. Those of you with Emily can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and listen to this passage. Those of you who, like me, might just want to just kind of listen for a minute. Listen to this passage. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Right into the same church, later in the sermon. Imagine the faces, ordinary people, worshipers. Tom, Bill, Sally, you know, give them Hebrew names or whatever. Just imagine they're real people made of the same stuff that you are. They have in-laws. They have jobs that might be kind of hanging in the balance. They may have health issues. They have kids that may not listen. I mean, they have the same, there's nothing new under the sun. So you've got to know the same stuff that we have might look different, but it's the same stuff they have. And here's what he says to them. Recall the former days, is verse 32, when after you were enlightened, you could say after you came to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. It's just stuff. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You may receive cisterns you didn't build, houses you didn't build. You may receive a Sabbath rest that God instituted for you. He's appealing to the early church. Likely some of their parents heard Christ preach firsthand. Any of us have that going for us? I mean, how potent would that faith be? You think about it. That's like one degree of separation between them and Christ himself. Ooh, that's potent. Ooh-wee. That's real. And already they're on the bubble. And this appeal that he's making to them is just as important as the appeal that he's making through this to us 2,000 years later. Don't quit. Continue. And continue via your ears. Be united by faith to the listeners. To the preaching of his word. I found a quote by Spurgeon. Someone sent this to me last week. It was really good. It's from uh, Spurgeon is commenting on Psalm 101. And here's what he says. It's good. He says, how much do we all need keeping? How much do we all need, actually he said divine keeping. How much do we all need divine keeping? We are no more perfect than David. Nay, we fall far short of him in many things. And like him, we shall find need to write a psalm of penitence. Very soon after our psalm of good resolution. He's just giving words there to Peter's. I will never forsake you, Jesus. I will never bail on you. Man, I'm in for the... I will die for you. And a few hours later to a maiden girl, I don't know him. Thrice. I don't know him. Nay. I don't know him. We. Man, how much do we need divine keeping? This potential is there for any of us to fall away because we stop listening, we grow dull of hearing and resultantly hard of hearts. Last thing to consider this morning is continuing via the church family journey. Continuing is a corporate responsibility. I mean, I'm telling you, I treasure all three of them, but this one right here is especially encouraging for me. In verse 1 of chapter 4, turn back over there, Emily, and anybody else that ended up making that journey. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'll tell you later who told, who told on you so you can hold them accountable. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, listen to this. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here's what these two verses are saying. 
Let us together fear lest any single one of us fails to continue until Saturday. Let us together as a church fear. Let us strive together to reach Saturday so that no single one of us falls by disobedience on Tuesday or Wednesday when it's really hard or on Friday when you're so close. Let us strive together. Turn back over to chapter 10. I do want all of you to turn there. You remember I just read this passage of verses 32 through 36. Keep that in mind as I read this passage right here with three more let us's. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, this is the massive grove, truths. In light of all that, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance, of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three more let us's. This book is saturated with let us's. Things that we do together. Things that we do that if they don't do, if we don't do, crazy big things don't happen. Crazy bad things do happen. Look what the next verse says. Please just see this in context. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What he's saying here, here's what it looks like if the let, let us's don't happen. If we go on sinning deliberately... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Man, that does not sound good. Those are the things that happen if the let us's don't happen. The corporate let us's are protection against disbelief. It's the means he uses so that we don't stop believing. The let us's of fearing lest any single one of us falls away and doesn't make Saturday. The let, us, the let us's of striving together to reach Saturday. The let us's of let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You see how simple it is? Satan makes not meeting together, neglecting to meet together, seem so innocuous. What's the big deal? I'll pull them up online when I have some time later this week. Sometimes I feel like our online stuff is as much a curse as it is an opportunity. Because some people use it as a crutch to not gather. It's there for people that for some reason are traveling or sick or 
ailing. It's not a good substitute. Or some people will just land in the place of, man, I just don't really feel like seeing anybody this morning, so I'm just not going to go. And Satan make that seem, seem so inconsequential. What's the big deal? You're not going to stop believing. You're not going to go to hell for missing a Sunday. He takes little tiny things and makes them seem okay. But see how simple it sounds? See how simple it is? Not neglecting to meet together. These corporate let us's are protection against disbelief, protection against quitting on hump day, protection against going and sinning deliberately, spurning God's Son, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging, outraging the Spirit of grace. These let us's. Do you realize we have that much power involved in each other's lives, that much influence? Do you realize that God uses us in each other's lives so that we will go the distance and make it to Saturday? Do you realize how important it is that we are in a meaningful way involved in each other's lives and that you give other people access into yours? Do you realize what danger you're in when you try and go it alone? You've got no let us's. It's another example. I think I'll go my own plan. Hopefully it'll work out when our scriptures say otherwise. These let us's are what God uses to get us to Saturday. Now I'm going to end the morning with a story. A story from our Bible, though. I don't really have many good stories otherwise. And I really, you know, unless you're just really, really adamant about turning, I would like for you to listen. I'll give you the reference for those that are really a visual. Some people are so visual, it's okay. Second Kings chapter 5. But I'd like for most of you to just listen. It's a story. But it's a, it, it, it's a story that I think will bring this together for you in something that you can kind of put your hands around. Naaman, commander of the army of king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. This dude Naaman is a commander of the Syrian army. And apparently he's quite the warrior. He can get it done. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. You can imagine that would put a damper on your war fighting if your nose is hanging off. You know, that, I don't know, all leprosy wasn't necessarily like that. It could have just been a skin, skin condition, you know, but it's something apparently that's noteworthy enough to where people know and identify. He's a leper. He's commander of the Syrian army. Pretty accomplished. Pretty amazing dude. But he's got a serious skin issue. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. This little Israelite girl is talking with her, her boss, Naaman's wife. Would that Naaman was with Elisha. Because Elisha would heal Naaman of his nose hanging off. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, I guess the wife, you know, insert wife tells Naaman, hey, you need to hear this. Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of, of Israel. That's funny. 
Thus and so spoke the, the, the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So kings start to communicate, okay? Mm. I want my general to have his skin condition tended to, so I think I'll have him sent to Israel. So kings start communicating. So he went, Naaman goes to Israel, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Listen to how the king responds. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. This king is thinking, this is a trap. I can't cure Naaman of his leprosy. What am I going to do here? But when Elisha hears about it, Elisha says, Ah, yeah, here's a chance to glorify God. The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. And he sent to the king saying, Hey, king, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman gets his entourage. He got his gold and his shekels and his, got his, all his servants with him. You know, he's got the, the thing that people are carrying where he's, you know, he's riding in it with a little tent over his head, you know. Got to keep his, the sun off his leprosy. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha's a prophet. I just can't imagine him being in a mansion. I mean, I just see Elisha, you know, like Elijah, living pretty lean. So I'm kind of imagining kind of a shanty, you know. Elisha's there, and Naaman's standing at the front door, you know. There's not even a door to knock on, really. It's kind of like a piece of fabric or something, you know. And Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman, who's at the front door. And Elisha sent a messenger saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now Naaman was angry and went away saying behold I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper are not the Abana and the Farper the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel now let me tell you something my whole life growing up I imagined the Jordan River to be like the Savannah River if you've ever been to the Savannah it's beautiful. You know, it's meandering, these cypress hanging out over it, Spanish moss hanging down, you know, bass striking over here, you know, turtles sitting on a log. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, when I actually went to the Jordan, I went with Jeff Simmons and Brad Cardwell and Kent Jones and we go to the Jordan and the guy walks us down there to the Jordan River, supposedly where, where Jesus was baptized. We said, Jesus, where he was baptized right here. So we're supposedly where he's baptized. And I was like, man, are you sure this is the Jordan? Because it don't look like the Jordan. It looked like a muddy ditch. I mean, it looked like something like if you went running hard and fast enough, like you could almost leap across it. I mean, you almost could. You quite couldn't, you know. But then you'd like stink in mud. I mean, it was under impressive. And flies everywhere. I, know, I don't think I've laughed as hard as watching. Some of y'all know Kent Jones. Kent Jones getting mad at the flies. 
I was like, yeah, get mad at them, because if you get mad at them, they'll stay away from you. <laughs> Just get mad. Yeah. I mean, these flies, it was like a, one of those things that, that shows on TV where people are starving. These flies are like all over your face. And this is the Jordan River. And I'm like, oh, man. I re- now, I'm reading this with a new set of eyes going, I get why Naaman is like, the Jordan? Why would I go get in the muddy, unimpressive, fly-infested Jordan River? Now, some people think the topography has changed a little bit in the last couple thousand years. It's hard to imagine it could change that much. But it was under-impressive. So I'm getting Naaman's surprise here. Isn't the Abana and the Farper much better than Damascus? And oh, by the way, I was kind of hoping that Elisha would come out here and wave his hand over my problem because I need special treatment. You see my entourage? Don't you know who I am? I want to see him come out here and wave his hand over my, like, and go, like, and I'm all healed. Say some special words. But instead, he sends his messenger to the door. Go wash in the unimpressive Jordan. So, here's how the rest of the story goes. Are not the Abana and the Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. You can see it. He turns, and his nose turns after him. He's mad. <laughs> He's so mad. But his servants came near to him and they said, Hey, Naaman, um, my father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Now, here's why that story connects to the morning. There's something in every single one of us that feels like we need something special. I need something special. I don't need kind of like this massive, impersonal gathering, you know, from that joker. I need something special. Now, I don't for a moment want to discount if you feel like, you know, if the Lord has led you to go seek some specific treatment or counsel from a specialist. This is not dismissing all that. But I want you to understand that there's some naming in every single one of us where we want somebody to wave their hand over our problem. We want somebody to wave their hand over our marriage, wave their hand over our health issue, wave their hand over our work situation. I need some special treatment. Don't you know who I am? Don't you see my entourage? And in reality, what you actually need is the unimpressive but ever-flowing Jordan River of the let us's of the people of God. Man, that's what you need. It's unimpressive. Flies. Almost leap across it. But it's what God has ordained to cleanse us. It's what God has ordained to keep us. It is what God has ordained to get us through the week 
to Saturday to rest in his Sabbath. Whatever is in you that thinks you need something special and to dismiss what he's ordained, please hear what was shared this morning. I appeal to you, engage the let us's. Some of you here this morning are family members. You're here for the dedication, and that's it. And you can't wait to get out of here. I'm appealing to you too. Chances are the family member in their heart right now is celebrating that you're here hearing truth that God could use so that you might make it to Saturday. So that you might enter into God's rest. The rest of us need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it. Man, who doesn't need divine keeping? And we're all involved in that work. We're going to have the Lord's Supper next. I'm going to read a short passage from Leviticus 22. Anytime I'm reading devotionally and I see a passage that connects to our supper, I just want to share that. And this one is very brief. It'll be a nice connection to our supper. And then I'll pray and we'll have our supper together. The book of Leviticus, not a real exciting book. You know, maybe a little dusty for you. It's not one that I spent a lot of time reading, but I was just happened to be pressing through chapter 22. It's in a section of Scripture dealing with holiness and priests. You may not realize this about a lot of the sacrificial system, but a lot of the sacrifices that were offered were actually eaten. Portions of it were eaten not only by the worshiper, but also by the priest. That's how the priest ate. That's what they ate for food. So listen to this passage. Chapter 22, verse 10. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of his food. I enjoyed that brief but beautiful picture of the fact that the high priest has purchased us. Not with money, but with blood. So that we may eat of a holy thing. In these next few minutes, as we dine together on this supper, Consider and enjoy together that we dine because of his finished work. Let me pray. <clears throat> God, I'm so thankful. So thankful for this sweet chapter in Hebrews. So thankful for these massive groves, massive trees that you've exposed through this book of these amazing truths that we have in Christ. And Lord, I'm thankful too that in the massive grove is also some very practical things that we can grab. The continuing is through our ears. And that we continue in community with let us's. I'm thankful for the imagery of Naaman's story where I see so much of myself and see the beautiful irony of the unimpressive, under-impressive Jordan of the church. 
Lord, I pray that we will be this Jordan. I pray that we will continue to be, I should say, that we will grow in our Jordanness. There will be a symphony of let us's. And that through that, that not any single one of us will bail on hump day. God, I beg for that. I pray that we together will fear. That we together will notice when some have neglected to gather. That we together will appeal to those who are on the bubble to continue. That we together will remind each other of the amazing treasure and rest that's in store where we have nothing due. Nothing due. Real rest. God, I'm thankful that you have purchased our place at the table through your son's work. I'm thankful that because of his bloodshed that we can come take and eat of a holy meal. We enjoy this together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's have a holy meal together purchased by another. Let's take and eat. Take and drink.